0: In a book I recently purchased at the Creation Museum entitled, The Gender and Marriage War, the authors make this statement. They say, We are in a culture where people who are born male sometimes presume they are female and demand that all other people accept and applaud their false perception as though it were true. Likewise, there are females insisting that they are men. Others demand that there is no such thing as male or female or that one can be both. Others say there are over a hundred different genders and you must somehow know what to call each of those who self-identify with their said gender or you risk fines and jail time. This illogical and false view is sad and yet tremendously evil at the same time. In our deranged culture, if a man thinks he's a woman, or vice versa, they are often praised and encouraged to have their bodies cut up surgically to make them look more like the opposing sex. Worse yet, our culture is pursuing laws to impose these strange beliefs on children and in schools, which is child abuse, even going so far as to help children have surgeries to try to look like the opposite sex without parental consent. Now, folks, sadly, tragically, this is the world that we now live in. What would have been considered absurd and absolutely unthinkable just a few years ago, now is the new norm. It's mainstream, and it's embraced by our culture as progressive, positive thinking, something that's good, something that's right, something that will help society. So, how is thinking like this even possible? in an enlightened society, why are so many well-educated and seemingly intelligent individuals so enthusiastic about blurring genders and all the other nonsense that goes along with this? I mean, a few years ago, we would have laughed at this. We would have said, you belong in an insane asylum to think this way. Well, there are a number of reasons for this, for this condition that we find ourselves in now. The first one being that what we are seeing today is nothing less than the result of satanic and demonic delusion and deception. Satan's goal has always been not only to oppose everything that God has created, but to destroy it, to assault it, to wipe it out. And since God is the one who created the biblical concept of the family along with the biblical roles of a father, of a mother, and a child, then Satan has assaulted it. He has attacked it. You see, the family as God designed it is the foundation of society. If you destroy the family, you destroy the stability of society. And when society is destabilized, you have chaos, you have turmoil, you have madness. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. And behind it all, Is Satan. Secondly, the blurring of genders is an expression of the rebellious nature of the human race on display for all to see. You see, to reject your biological gender is nothing more than blatant rebellion against the Creator who assigned you this gender. In their desire to be their own gods with complete self determination and autonomy, they have mutinied and revolted against. Lord, against the gender role assigned to them by God, and the distinction between male and female that are clearly spelled out in the Bible. So it's their way of saying, I don't care how God made me, I'll do whatever I want, I can determine my gender, not him. So what we're seeing today is the truth of Jeremiah 17 verse 9 being lived out for all to see. What does that say? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So, so now, we have a generation of deceived and deluded individuals, including one of our Supreme Court justices, who when asked by a senator at her confirmation hearing to define the word woman, responded by saying, I'm not a biologist. That's what she said, that's an exact quote. So basically, our situation today is very similar to what we had in the days of the judges back in the Old Testament, where we read that there was no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Basically, you become your own authority. So then, what are we supposed to do? We mean believers in Christ. As those who love the Lord, as those who believe that the Bible is the word of God, what are we to do in light of all this? Well, we're to do what God's people in every generation have had to do. We are to reject the evils of the culture that we live in, and in the words of Psalm 1, walk not in the counsel of the wicked, but delight ourselves in the law of our God. In other words, we are to look to the word of God to tell us what's right, what's wrong, not our culture. One passage of scripture that gives us clarity on what is right, what is wrong, by helping us to define the biblical design and the roles of men and women is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. So I want to read this to you. We're just going to scratch the surface tonight. We'll continue this in weeks to come. But this is the the whole passage. Paul writes, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman. And God, and he means God the Father, is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head... Uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is in the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man." For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth. Through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if, you, that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Now, as you can see from just this brief reading of these These verses, this passage deals with the issue of women and head coverings. And as we will see as we go through these verses, Paul argues he's making a case for the women of the Corinthian church to have their heads covered. But understand this, not all the time, not all the time, but only when they are in church and ministering in the sense that they're praying or prophesying. However, and it's a big however, what I want you to understand is that although it would appear that head coverings for women, that that's the main issue that Paul is addressing because, well, it's mentioned so much, the primary underlying concern of this passage and of the apostle really isn't women covering their heads, but rather it is the biblical role of a woman as designed by God to, note this, she is to be subordinate to the authority Of men. And in the culture of first century Corinth, one outward way for a woman to show that she was submissive to her husband and to the male leadership of her church was to wear a head covering while she was praying or while she was prophesying while in church. I want you to notice just how often the Apostle Paul refers the Corinthians back to God's design for men and women as he created them to be. I'm telling you that that is the underlying message here, how God created a woman and a man. So, for example, notice verse 3. But I want you to understand, the apostle says, that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, here Paul states that God has established, and we'll deal with this a little further in the message, but God has established a universal principle of authority And submission, so that it includes, note this, even the Godhead, whereby God the Father is the authority over Jesus Christ, and Christ is the authority over man, and man is the authority over woman. So he goes back to the creation on this, God creating man and woman. Again, in verse 7, Paul states that unlike women, men, he says, should not have their heads covered in church. And he argues. That this is the case because why? Because God created man and not woman to represent his authority. Once again, he goes back to creation. The gender roles. For a man, he says, verse 7, ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. And notice verse 10 where we read these words. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Once again, the issue comes down to authority. Now, although Bible teachers have long wrestled with the individual details of this statement by Paul and and what those details mean, the essential point, the essential gist of the verse seems to be that when women come to church, Angels are watching them and they should wear the conventional head covering of their day that symbolized that they are in a subordinate role to man. So understand this, the primary, the essential issue in this passage and the truth that really undergirds everything else isn't whether or not a woman should have her head covered when she comes to church, but rather whether or not she accepts the God-ordained role of being in submission to men, first to her husband and then to her male church leaders. And therefore, she dresses in such a way that reflects her God-ordained role of being in submission. And in the first century, that way was to wear a head covering. Now, if you understand this, then you should have really no problem understanding Paul's teaching in these verses. Now, I recognize, having said that, that not all Christians see it this way. Some believers feel quite strongly that what Paul is teaching here is an unbending universal rule that women should always wear some type of head covering when she's in church, regardless of local customs. For years, I ministered in churches in Italy. I once counted up how long I had been there. I've been to Italy over eight months I've spent my life, not all at once, but over eight months in Italy, ministering, teaching, and speaking in churches. And in Italy, at least the churches that I ministered in, all the married women came to church with their heads covered. The unmarried women did not need to do that, but all the married women came... To church with heads covered. So, and they felt strongly about this. So I understand that Christians are divided over this issue of women and head coverings and that not everyone sees this as Paul addressing a first century custom that isn't necessary to be followed today. At Lakeside, we have no problem with a woman choosing to wear a head covering when she's in church if that's what she believes God wants her to do. We have absolutely no problem with that. However, What is essential and far more important than wearing a head covering is that she be in submission to her husband because that is the real message of Paul in these verses. And frankly, in our culture, a woman wearing a head covering, it's just not a custom that others recognize as a symbol of authority. That's just not what we think of. But that wasn't the case in Paul's day, not at all explaining the meaning of head coverings for a woman in the first century. John MacArthur wrote this. He said, In Paul's day, numerous symbols were used to signify the woman's subordinate relationship to men, particularly of wives to husbands. Usually the symbol was in the form of a head covering, and in the Greek-Roman world of Corinth, the symbol apparently was a veil of some kind. In many Near East countries today, a married woman's veil still signifies that she will not expose herself to other men, that her beauty and charms are reserved entirely for her husband, that she does not even care to be noticed by other men. Similarly, in the culture of first century Corinth, wearing a head covering while ministering or worshiping was a woman's way of stating her devotion and her submission to her husband, and of demonstrating her commitment to God. So then, the question comes down to this. If a head covering on a woman isn't part of our Western culture, and it really isn't, because it no longer carries the symbol, the thought of submission to her husband, then is this even a relevant study for us? I mean, it's interesting. We want to know what Paul was teaching, but does it apply to us? Does this passage have any real significance for us today if it was just a custom at Corinth? And the answer is it absolutely does have significance for us. It is absolutely relevant and important for us to study. In fact, it's a very relevant subject with a great deal of application. I'll tell you why. Because while head coverings may no longer be a current Day issue in our world a woman's rebellion though to her God ordained role of submission is an issue that is a big current day problem and one that is strikingly and underline that in your mind strikingly similar to the way women rebelled against God in their God given role in the first century one theologian writing about women rebelling in the first century and what that rebellion looked like Said this, so we take a step back into history and we look at what rebellion of women looked like in the first century. This theologian wrote We know from secular history that various movements of women's liberation and feminism appeared in the Roman Empire during New Testament times. Women would often take off their veils or other head coverings and cut their hair in order to look like men. Much as in our own day, some women were demanding to be treated exactly like men, and they attacked marriage and the raising of children as unjust restrictions of their rights. Sounds very similar. They asserted their independence by leaving their husbands and homes, refusing to care for their children, living with other men, demanding jobs traditionally held by men, wearing men's clothing and hairdos, and by discarding all signs of femininity it is likely that some of the believers at Corinth were influenced by these movements and as a sign of protest and independence refused to cover their heads at appropriate times. So you can see that there are some definite parallels and similarities to our world, which makes this then a very appropriate passage for us to delve into and study and apply to our lives. There's a great deal of pertinent application here. Therefore, with this as our background, we're ready then to dive into the text. And I said, we're just going to scratch the surface here. And in doing so, we see that the way that the passage unfolds is that Paul lays out several essential truths about, note this, not so much head coverings, but the principle of authority and submission, with the first principle being this. Number one, God has established the concept of authority and submission as a universal rule and principle. Now, I realize that it's been quite a while, uh, many months since we studied 1 Corinthians, but I want you to recall for a moment where we are in our study. Because beginning with chapter 7, if you can think back that far, and continuing through chapter 10, Paul has been addressing some questions that the Corinthians had written to him about in a letter. And what did, they, what did they write about? Well, it concerned issues that they were wrestling with. They had questions for Paul, specifically the question of marriage, the question of divorce, remarriage, singleness, and how to handle differences of opinion over the matter of eating foods that had been sacrificed to an idol. I remind you of how Paul introduced this in chapter 7, verse 1. He said, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. So they had written to Paul in a letter. We don't have this letter, obviously. And they had concerns. But their concerns were of, note this, a personal matter. A really individual matter as opposed to local church matters. It was of a personal nature that they had written to Paul about. Seeking direction and guidance from him. As I said, marriage, singleness, divorce, those those kinds of issues. Should we eat food sacrificed to an idol, shouldn't we? But starting with chapter 11, verse 2, because chapter 1 really concludes Paul talking about liberty issues, Paul now moves into a whole new section of his letter to the Corinthians. As he begins dealing with problems not of a personal nature, he's already done that, but rather... Matters related to the public worship service of the church. That is to say, when the church gathers as a whole. And that's why in this section of his letter, we will deal eventually with issues such as how to behave when we come to the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11, verse 17. He introduces the Lord's Supper or communion. Also, the use of spiritual gifts when the church gathers on Sundays. He starts that in chapter 12. He'll continue that in chapter 13, on the love chapter, which is really about the use of spiritual gifts. And then he will continue this in chapter 14. But before getting to the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts, Paul first deals with the roles of men and women while they ministered in church. And the way that Paul transitions to this subject is by stating in verse 2, Now, I praise you, he starts out by saying. I praise you. Now, this is very interesting. Paul, first thing Paul tells the Corinthians in this new section, is that he praises them. That's not only interesting, it might strike you as a bit surprising because of all the problems that Paul has been confronting the Corinthians about. We've been in this letter for for a while, and we've seen that they had all kinds of problems. I'll remind you, there were divisions in the church. There were factions. I'm a Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm a Peter. No, I'm more spiritual. I'm just of Christ. Paul spoke to them about their spiritual immaturity. He said, I, I couldn't communicate with you as mature men, but as babes in Christ, infants. They were spiritually immature. They failed to discipline an immoral member of their church. Chapter 5. They, they failed to put him out of the church. He was having relations with his stepmother. Taking one another to court, chapter 6. He said it's disgraceful to do that. Failures in their, their marriages. So in light of all of these sins and problems, how can Paul praise them? But he does. Well, as we continue reading verse 2, we see exactly what Paul is praising them for. Because, he says, you remember me. This is why he's praising them. You remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, what Paul is praising the Corinthians for is not their sin. He can't praise them for their sin but the fact that they appreciate him as an apostle, and in doing so, they are seeking to observe the teachings that he had delivered to them when he was with them in person, which would have been the founding of the church, Acts chapter 18. You see, the word traditions in this context isn't something negative. It's not negative because it's not referring to man-made customs and practices which Jesus often condemned the Pharisees for, for their traditions, the traditions of men. But that's not how Paul in this context is using the word traditions. He's using the term traditions here in a positive sense to refer to his biblical teaching, to divinely reveal truths that he had received from Jesus and delivered to the Corinthians. The apostle, you can see, he uses the same word traditions the same way when he wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. It's the same thing. He said, so then brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or by letter from us. So, the traditions that Paul is referring to here is his authoritative apostolic teaching. And though the Corinthians struggle with a great deal of personal Sins and issues so that they needed to be corrected. I want you to understand for the most part for the most part they were sound in their theology. They were sound in their doctrine. In fact the only doctrine that Paul had to straighten them out about seems to be the doctrine of the resurrection. He'll deal with that in in chapter 15 but other than that they were theologically sound as a local church. They had been well taught by Paul on doctrine and they were fairly Fairly solid when it came to their doctrine and theology. And although some in the Corinthian assembly, we know that from studying about their division, some in the Corinthian assembly had a problem with Paul. Apparently, based on what Paul was saying, I praise you for appreciating and taking and receiving the the word that I taught you. Apparently, the vast majority of the Corinthians did accept Paul as an apostle and were determined to obey his teachings. But having said that, that he praises them for this, Paul is now ready to move on to another area in which he needed to correct their behavior. So now he's correcting them, only it's behavior related to men and women as they gathered in church. Understand that the issue of the role of men and women in the church, but only, that's the primary issue, only in a secondary sense is it the issue of women and head coverings. However, before the Apostle Paul mentions the specific matter, the specific problem that he had to correct in this church, he first mentions a timeless principle that God has established, and he does this so that the Corinthians will realize that they have violated this timeless principle. They can't know what they've done wrong unless Paul tells them, here's the right way, and then he'll explain, you're not practicing the right way. And the specific principle of Paul that Paul has in mind is spelled out in verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Now Paul wants them to understand that there is a principle, meaning there is a truth, an unbending rule that God has established which permeates the universe. It's an inflexible Rule. It's a non negotiable principle. And that is that he has established the principle of headship and subordination. Meaning this meaning simply that somebody always leads and somebody always follows. In other words, authority and submission to authority is an eternal principle that encompasses the entire universe without exception. And the way Paul explains this eternal. Universal principle of authority and submission is by stating first that Christ is the head of every man. And then he states and the man is the head of a woman and God, and by God he means God the Father, is the head of Christ. So what does Paul mean by this? Well, first of all, it's important to know that the term that Paul is using, head, he's using it in the sense of having authority, of being in charge over someone. Just as as your head that sits on your neck and houses your brain is in charge of your body, giving leadership direction to everything that you do. So leadership resides, Paul says, in those whom God has put in charge of others. So he's using head in the sense of how how we normally would use head, being in charge, being over someone. So when Paul says that Christ is, is the head of every man he means that jesus christ is over all of mankind he's using the word man in the sense of generic mankind he's in charge of mankind he has the authority not only over believers but over unbelievers jesus created all human beings he has the authority over all human beings even those who don't acknowledge his authority over them now but someday they will because Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow haven't bowed yet but they will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father so Jesus Christ is head over every man meaning over every person Every individual, men and women. Likewise, as Paul continues, he says that God has established the principle that man is the head of the woman. Meaning that the way God designed the human race to function is that men are to be leaders, especially in the home and in the church, while women are to be in submission to male leaders. Now, some Christians have a real problem with this, I understand, and certainly the vast majority of unbelievers would outright reject this truth, believing that this is demeaning towards women and delegates them to a second-class status in society while establishing men as superior to women. But that's not at all what Paul is teaching, not at all. And the proof of that is found in the very next statement that Paul gives in verse 3 about authority and submission. Notice, he says, And God is the head of Christ. Now, this is an important theological statement by Paul, and one that we have to be careful that we don't misunderstand. Because when Paul says that God is the head of Christ, he certainly does not mean that Christ is any way inferior to God the Father. All three members of the Trinity or triunity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are all equally God. Three persons in one who make up the Godhead. The Father is no more divine than Christ, and Christ is no less divine than the Father. Upon that we stand. That's a non-negotiable. Anything anything different than that is called heresy. However, In the wise plan of God, when Jesus became a man in the incarnation, he submitted himself to the Father and to the Father's will. Here are just some of the many statements that Jesus made during his earthly ministry which affirm that he was at that time in complete submission to the Father. For example, in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's in submission. His food, what sustains Him is to do the will of the Father. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And that's God the Father. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now the fact that Jesus is in no way inferior to the Father, but simply that in his incarnation, he willingly took a subordinate role to the Father, so women are not in any way inferior to men, but have been assigned by God the role of being in submission to men. Listen to these wise words by one Bible scholar as he brings clarity to this whole issue of authority and submission. If you're struggling with this, listen closely. I think it'll help. He said, Paul makes no distinction between men and women as far as personal worth, abilities, intellect, or spirituality are concerned. Both as human beings and as Christians, women in general are completely equal to men spiritually. Some women, obviously, are even superior to some men in abilities, intellect, maturity, and spirituality. God established the principle of male authority and female subordination for the purpose of order and complementarianism. Not on the basis of an innate superiority of males. An employee may be more intelligent and more skilled than his boss, but a company cannot be run without submission to proper authority, even if some of those in authority are not as capable as they ought to be. A church may have some women who are better Bible students, better theologians, and better speakers than any of the men, including the pastor. Would you like me to read that last part? (laughs) Including the pastor. But if those women are obedient to God's order, they will submit to male leadership and will not try to usurp it simply because this is God's design. A wife may be better educated, better taught in scripture and more spiritually mature than her husband, but because she is spiritual, she will willingly submit to him as head of the family. I hope that brings some clarity to you. This is not male chauvinism that we're talking about. This is simply order. Orderliness in the universe. God the Father over Christ, Christ over mankind, men over women. So this is the chain of command that God has laid down as an eternal, universal principle. There must be someone in authority and someone who is in submission to that authority. This is true with Christ, as I said, in relation to mankind. This is true with men in relation to women. And this is even true with God the Father in relation to to Jesus Christ. Now listen closely. The reason that Paul stated this universal principle of authority and subordination is because the Corinthians were guilty of violating this principle. And so, as Paul continues, he reveals exactly how they were violating this principle by giving us a second truth about authority and submission. That truth being this that the principle of authority and submission is to be reflected in the distinction between men and women. Verses 4 through 6. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off, But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved and let her cover her head. Now, as you can see, these verses describe the precise problem that was taking place in the church at Corinth. And though I know you're eager to see what these verses mean, and I hate to leave you hanging, I'm going to, because time does play a factor. So I'll have to wait until next time to study this passage. But I want you to see how one thing flows to another. Paul first states the principle, and then he tells the Corinthians, you violated this principle, and here's how you're violating it. So next time we study this, we'll get into this. But what you need to see from our study tonight is simply that submission to authority. It's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of head coverings or what you wear, your clothing, God is the one who established this principle of someone being the leader and someone being the follower. Your responsibility, my responsibility, is simply to understand what His Word says and then simply to obey it. So husbands, I ask you this. If you're a husband, are you leading your wife? Are you being a good leader? Which means you must set an example for her to follow. You have to be the kind of servant leader that God has called you to be and that involves being kind Loving, caring, sensitive, thoughtful. It's 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding way. If you don't do this, you might as well not pray, Peter says, because your prayers will go unanswered. It's that important. So husbands, be exhorted. Be the leader that you need to be. A loving, kind, sensitive, thoughtful leader. And wives, are you in submission to your husband? If not, you're in sin. Do you listen to what he tells you to do? Do you trust the Lord to work through your husband? Though he's, he's a very fallible man, he makes mistakes like all husbands. Can you trust the Lord to work through him? As I said this morning, we're singing about how sovereign God is. Well, this is a matter of do you really believe the sovereignty of God? It's one thing to say I believe it. It's another thing to say I practice it and I live by it. Are you obeying your husband with a willing heart, not a complaining heart? And to all I ask this, are you in submission to the Lord Jesus himself? Do you listen to him from his word? Do you obey his word? Does it mean anything to you when you're having a Bible reading or your devotions, your quiet time, and you come across a command? Do you just read over it because you've got to get through the Bible in a year? Or do you say, I have to obey this? Is he really your Lord who you have surrendered to? Or are you your own authority? It's either one or the other. Either he's the authority or you're your own authority. Doing what you think is right rather than following the word of God. See, the issue of authority and submission is a matter of the heart. Not whether or not you're wearing a head covering. So if you're not fulfilling these God-designed roles for you, then you need to confess this. It's sin. You need to repent. You need to make the necessary changes. And if you've never submitted yourself to Christ by trusting him for salvation, then you need to. He is the Lord, and as Lord, he has every right to rule and to reign over you. He not only invites you to come to him for salvation, in Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul said that God commands men everywhere to repent. It's a command to believe on Christ. It's an invitation, it's a command, because he has every right to rule over you. So if you've never come to him, please. Come to him and be saved today. Let's pray. Father, we have delved into what is a controversial subject these days. Christians are divided on it. I pray that as we study this, Lord, that you give us light and understanding and not a contentious spirit. I pray that if there's a disagreement, we won't be disagreeable. But in love, we would respect one another's thoughts. Lord, I do pray that you'll help us to see that the big picture here is one of the heart of submission to authority. May all wives here be in submission to their husbands. May all husbands be good leaders of their wives. May single women in our church be in submission to the men who lead this church, as uh, should all of us be in submission to our pastors. And Lord, we as pastors and we as a church body, may we be in submission to Christ And follow what he has taught us in the word. We pray for those who perhaps have never come to saving faith. That you would draw them to yourself and they would be saved. Lord, how you love the lost and and long for them to be your children. And we pray to that end that they will be. That some who listen tonight will indeed be drawn to you for salvation. For all of this we pray in Jesus name. Amen.